Isaiah 52, verse 13. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. The message of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ is so familiar to us, we are not shocked by those verses as we should be. You see, God's people knew how God rescued them. He'd done it time and time again in the Old Testament, most famously in the Exodus, that great Old Testament rescue event. He rescued them by bringing judgment on their enemies. He rescued them by displaying his power and his strength. He rescued them with deadly destruction on those who dared to oppose him, the living God. Whether that was the king of Egypt's army drowned in the Red Sea while the Israelites walked across on the dry land, or whether that's the king of Assyria's army decimated overnight in Isaiah 37, the angel of the Lord coming into their camp and killing 185,000 of them as the people of Judah slept peacefully in their beds. That's how God rescues his people from their enemies. The problem was what God hadn't done was rescue them from themselves. Because the Old Testament is a history of the Lord who keeps his promises to a fickle and disobedient people, a people who he loves who don't love him in return, a people he keeps who desert him at the first opportunity, a people who he is faithful to who are faithless and half-hearted at best. And so when Isaiah promises this great future for his people, Isaiah has promised a a new exodus, a beautiful new land. They can understand that there's going to be a great king coming. They can understand one filled with the Spirit of the Lord will come in might. That's the sort of rescue that they're looking to. But, But how is God going to deal with them? How's he going to deal with their hearts? God says he's going to forgive his people, but how it'll be achieved? And the shock is, the answer comes in a servant. He's introduced in the first servant song in Isaiah 42 and verse 1. Here is my servant, says the Lord, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. His global mission is announced in the second song, Isaiah 49, 6. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, the the non-Jews, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. There are hints that his life won't be easy in the third servant song, Isaiah 50 verse 6. The servant says, I offered up my back to those who beat me my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. A suffering servant who's going to bring about what God promises. And look what God promises with me. Look at Isaiah 52 and verse 7. This is what God promises. 
How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. But how? Here comes the glorious rescuing king. But how? And this last song tells us. And here is the shock. It's a song of salvation through suffering, of beauty and butchery, of healing and being wounded, of victory through defeat. It's a structured song. There are five stanzas or verses, and they center on the heart of the matter. Isaiah 53 and verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we have been healed. And it's a song that, as you well know, the New Testament shows us is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the servant king, the son of man who came not to be served, but to serve by giving his life as a ransom for many. So you cannot read these verses as a Christian without having your thoughts immediately taken to Jesus hanging on a cross for you. Now that's where our mind's eye is to be as we read Isaiah 52, verse 13 through to 53, 12. And if you're not yet a Christian here this evening, this song in Isaiah will take you to the heart of what Christians call the gospel, the good news, the news that it is Jesus Christ crucified and risen for you. Not just events in history, but God's rescue of a people. These are the most precious things we have to offer you as Christians. This is the most holy ground that we walk upon. This is where we're going to ponder the depth of the love of God for us as we gaze on the cross of Christ through the lens of Isaiah. Because the song starts with a command to see verse 13 of chapter 52. See, says the Lord, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Behold, look upon this, says God. Pay attention. Here is the high point of salvation, my servant. He is a wise servant. Our wisdom in the Bible is always active. It's not a philosophy or an idea. No, it is walking out your life according to the plan of God. God's servant will successfully carry out his divine mission. There's no mistake in the cross of Jesus. The outcome is certain. Here we are 700 years before it happens, and the Lord is writing clearly about it. He will be raised, says God. He will be lifted up. He will be exalted. There's no doubt to the end of this story This is no soulful ballad without hope. We know that the servant, by the end, will be given the place of highest honor. Uh, Three times the same message. Raised, lifted up, exalted. 
it's the Bible's way of saying there is no one who will be higher, no one who deserves greater dignity, no one who will rule over him. The servant will succeed. He is the Lord's servant after all. God says, see, my servant. But, but you know, in Isaiah, there's only one person who Isaiah talks about as being high and lifted up. Isaiah has a vision of him in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah 6, 1, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne. You see, somehow this servant who is a man is also the Lord. This man is God over all. And one day all people will see it. He'll be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Jesus may well have had these words in mind when he told his disciples in John chapter 12, verse 32, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And John goes on to comment. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Jesus says, do you remember Isaiah? I am the lifted up one, and my greatest victory will look like the ultimate defeat. To be raised up, I will be cast down because it is the wise servant who is disfigured. That's what verse 14 tells us. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. He was raised. He'll be lifted up, exalted. But, but for that to happen, he'll be, people will be appalled. He'll be disfigured. He'll be marred. But that's the shock. This servant will suffer. That's the wisdom of God, that the Lord of the universe will stoop lower than any man ever has or ever will. Appalled. People will look away, shocked by his appearance, repulsed. They won't be able to look upon him not because he suffered worse than others physically. And many people have been crucified, but actually the nature of what he suffered made him look less than human, subhuman. The image of God was so battered in him that he was almost unrecognizable. And that's why his suffering is the worst suffering. And not because of the physical pain, so the flogging with a, a Roman whip which was embedded with bone or, or shards of metal would have literally ripped the flesh off his back until the bones were exposed. The, the blows we read about to his, his head uh, with hands and sticks, they'd have left him bruised and bloodied and swollen. The crown of thorns, not just the bramble or the rose you find in your garden, but the savage long thorns of the local trees would have punctured his scalp so the blood flowed freely down his face and neck. But, but his suffering was worst, not because of the physical suffering. Bloodied and butchered, he, he still bore the beauty of the image of God, as does any human being. Nor was it the emotional suffering, though we saw this morning him deserted by his closest friends, though he was mocked as he died by the men who rigged his trial, Though he was shouted at by one who died alongside him on another cross, though he suffered alone, it, it wasn't the emotional suffering. No, it was the pain of one relationship fractured that most marred him, beyond that of any human. Because no one in history has ever suffered the spiritual suffering 
that the servant went through. No human has ever experienced the consequences of all humanity and the way that they have marred God's image in them poured onto him. You see, onto the Lord Jesus was poured all the ways we have failed to love God and one another. He he was disfigured with all the ugliness of a world that has rejected God. As the Bible says, he became sin for us. And so the, the one who'd only ever known the perfect love of his Father in heaven experienced what it was to be abhorrent to his Father in heaven. God was appalled at his own son. He turned his face away from the uncleanness and the sin that he bore. The one who was the perfect image of God, in whom God had all his fullness dwell, the one loved more by God than any other, bore on the cross everything that repulses God that is in us. He became unclean, so we might become clean. And there's no one higher, and there is no one who has gone lower than Jesus the precious servant, because he is the wise servant, disfigured, that we might be cleansed. Verse 15, so he will sprinkle many nations. See, there are many who are appalled by the disfigured servant. They, they look upon him dying upon the cross, and they think there is defeat and disgrace and shame, and they're not interested. But there are many who are cleansed by him, who are made whole by him. And not just from Judah, who received Isaiah, the remains of God's people in the Old Testament, but from across the world, he will sprinkle many nations. The servant comes to gather a global people for God. This one solitary, lonely, brutal, dehumanizing death has worldwide consequences. That's why we're here tonight. 2,000 years later, 2,000 miles away, talking about the servant. A sprinkling was a picture of cleansing in the Old Testament. It was the way that the sacrifice was often applied to to the Old Testament priests or or the people. Uh, Listen to how the the first high priest over God's people, Aaron and his sons, were cleansed. It, It comes from Exodus chapter 29. The Lord said, And take some blood from the altar and some of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and their garments. Then he and his sons and their garments will be consecrated. Uh, the blood of the animal who symbolically died in the place of the people for, for their sin, their rejection of God, was then sprinkled on the unclean people to, to make them fit for God's service. But because in the Old Testament, what you were on the outside was a symbol, a picture of what you were on the inside of your status before God. That's why if you had an, a skin disease or you had a wound, they didn't allow you into the heart of God's presence in the temple or the tabernacle, the tent where God was symbolically said to dwell. You were unclean. It's why priests had to have perfect bodies. They weren't allowed to be blemished. They had to be fit for God's presence. But now God says, my servant will come, a perfect man, and his body will be battered and bloodied because he will take on himself all our uncleanness. 
The picture of Jesus on the outside is a picture of what he bears on the inside so that he could sprinkle the nations, cleansing for the world through the blood of the servant shed in our place. Do you ever feel dirty? I still do things that make me feel dirty. It's a horrible feeling, isn't it? Unclean, unacceptable to God. I think feeling dirty and feeling shame often go together. Stained by our sin of the past, deeply ashamed of our sin in the present, even afraid of the sin you might commit in the future. Jesus came to cleanse you. Jesus came to cleanse you. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, wherever you're from, he will sprinkle many nations. And kings, verse 15 says, will shut their mouths because of him. But this leaves the powerful dumbfounded. They're shocked, they're speechless, they're, they're stunned into silence that the ones who rule over nations, because they've never heard before of a deliverer who'd be so disfigured to deliver them. A savior who will suffer to save them. It turns the wisdom of the world on its head. Because the world says, take pride in success, the success found in power and beauty. The Lord says, no, I praise the one who brought cleansing in weakness and ugliness. The world says, oh, I show my wisdom in what I have and how I'm better than you. And the Lord says, no, I show my wisdom in the one who gives up everything and has gone far lower than you ever will have to. Kings are dumbfounded. They shut their mouths because of him. For, for what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. That the nations of the world hadn't had the privilege of God's people. They'd not heard of the gracious and loving God who'd suggested that he'd provide sacrifice for their rejection of him through that animal cleansing sacrificial system. They've not heard that. But now the nations of the world who've never heard of this gracious promise-keeping God, they can see the love of God as the servant suffers. And now, now they will understand. They will understand how they can be whole as the servant is disfigured in their place. You see, if you're, you're here tonight and you've never heard that there's a God who loves you, then look to the cross of the servant king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you've never understood that there's a God who wants you to experience wholeness in life, peace with him and other people, then look to the cross of the servant king, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it's at the cross we see God truly revealed. God demonstrates his love for us in this, that whilst we are still sinners, Christ died for us. We see the depth to which his love will stoop to restore people. 
in the bloodied mess that is the precious servant of God, His one and only Son hanging there for us. In the suffering servant, we see what God is willing to experience so that He might keep His promises to you and to me. So here are three questions. Three questions to ask yourself as I finish. Does this leave you silenced? Silenced in wonder? Do you remember when you first saw Jesus on the cross for you? Do you remember that day? Saw him with the eyes of your heart. Were moved by the reality of what he'd done for you. Maybe wept tears of joy that you were loved like this. I have a a date. Not everyone has a date I can remember. I was in a talk at university. I'd grown up in a home where I'd been taught about Jesus. I believed in Jesus. I'd been to hundreds of talks about Jesus. Lots and lots of Good Friday services where we'd talked about the cross. But on February the 16th, 1989, I went from seeing Jesus died on the cross to seeing Jesus died on the cross for me. Do you remember when you first saw Jesus on the cross for you? Perhaps you can't remember a date, but you can remember that you were dumbstruck by the love of a God in the crucified servant, but but it just seems a long time ago now when you last felt like that. Or, Or perhaps, therefore, like me, you need to spend some more time at the foot of the cross. Can I recommend to you this book? We've got a few copies at the back. It's reflections on this song that we're looking at over the next five weeks. Why not use this to reflect at the foot of the cross for yourself? The beauty of the cross in the suffering servant. You see, the servant songs are here first and foremost to move our hearts so we are secure in God's love and so we want to sing of God's love. But before we sing, we should be silenced by the enormity of what we find at the cross. Our our proud hearts should be left speechless because of what God has done for us. God says, see, my servant. Kings are silenced by him. Does this silence you in awe and wonder? And do you see this as wisdom? That's the second question. Because I think the world's wisdom for for this life is to find the comfortable life, the life that involves the least suffering, the life that feels easiest. We keep trying to ask ourselves, if I just had that job or that relationship or lived in that area, then life would feel easier. We long for a life that feels easier. In fact, we spend most of our days trying to work out how we could make our life feel easier. That is the wise life. And so we've turned sacrifice in the Christian life into going to life group because I'm a bit tired. Stacking chairs because someone has to. And we call that sacrifice. And what we do when things might feel tough, or hard work, or even unpleasant, we assume that's wrong. That's foolishness. We shouldn't do that. Because our culture says suffering is not glorious. 
We euthanize people who suffer, and the danger is we euthanize our Christian service as soon as it becomes painfully hard work. But the wisdom of God is the wisdom of the cross, and that is the wisdom that cleanses people of sin. And so Paul says, as we've been seeing in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Wisdom is a crucified Christ. That is the powerful message, because that is the message that silences kings and cleanses nations. There was an article in uh, my paper yesterday about the, the model, Cindy Crawford. Uh, she's been around a while because I can remember her being uh, attractive in my youth. Now, her makeup regime, the article told me, costs her 400 quid in the morning to put her face on. The headline was this, when did becoming yourself become an act of bravery? When did becoming yourself become an act of bravery? The writer reflected, now, social media sometimes feels like a sea of misery, an ocean of people looking out who are really looking in, trying desperately to present to the world a different version of them, a less true one. The camera never lies, they say, but it does. Oh, how it does. You have to wonder about the mental health of a generation growing up to believe that the best way to be human can be found in not looking human at all. See, that's why the cross of Christ is the wisdom of God that sets your heart free. Because it shows you the one who loves you so much that they were willing to suffer to the point where they looked not human at all. So that you don't daily try, have to try and make yourself lovable. But you can know that you're loved by God not because you're beautiful, but despite the fact that you have an ugly heart, a heart you're ashamed of. And the question for us is, if we believe that is beautiful and wise, will we be a church that suffers to take that message to the world that desperately needs it? Will we see that that's a wise message and the wise life is the one spent for Jesus? However painful, However ugly that might appear to the world around us, however foolish, however costly. You see, the wisdom of God is to suffer brutally for the sake of others. That, that was the message of the servant song that drove the Apostle Paul, because here's the last question. Does this drive you to take the gospel to the nations? Because this verse is quoted in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul quotes it in Romans chapter 15. He's talking to the church in Rome, explaining what drives him, and he says, it has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who are not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. Did you see the certainty of this promise here? They will see they will understand. This is a promise that the servant's suffering will be effective. That Jesus' death on the cross means people will see God as they hear the message of the crucified Messiah. They will understand. And so in that confidence, 
Paul sets out with the message of Jesus into a world that's never even heard of him. He's confident he cannot think of anything better than telling someone the shocking message of the suffering servant because God's promises, it will change lives. It's all too rare, isn't it, today to find Christians whose hearts have been so moved by the cross that they're willing to give up everything to follow Jesus? I'm here challenging you about it, and I don't think my heart's been moved to that extent. I think there is a so far and no further within my heart. Praise God there wasn't a so far and no further in the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the most humbling quotes I know comes from an atheist, Matthew Paris, who used to be a conservative MP, writes in the Times newspaper, a journalist. And he once in his column summed up pretty accurately the gospel, the good news of Jesus, what Jesus has done for us at the cross. And then he wrote this. If I believed that, or even a tenth of that, How could I care which version of the prayer book was used? I would drop my job, sell my house, throw away my possessions, leave my acquaintances, and set out into the world with a burning desire to know more. And when I found out more, to act upon it and tell others. Far from being puzzled that the Mormons and Adventists should knock at my door, I am unable to understand how anyone who believes what is written in the Bible could choose to spend his waking hours in any other endeavor. I am unable to understand who anyone who believes what is written in the Bible could choose to spend his waking hours in any other endeavor. How will you spend your waking hours? in the light of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. See, my servant. Let's pray together. We're just going to have a moment's quiet for each to do business with the Lord in the light of what he's been saying to us personally. And then when the music starts, we'll stand to sing our next song.